Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. It's a privilege for me to be here to share some thoughts with you. Um, I'm basically just going to pick up where Boog left off last week. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, we'll read through 42 through 47. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Um, that's what Boog touched on last week. And to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the two themes I want to touch on this morning from this particular passage, they're themes that we're going to see again and again uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, those uh, themes are unity and community. When I talk about unity, I want us to think about in terms of how we relate to the body of Christ. And when I talk about community, I want us to think about how we relate to the world. Unity has always presented many challenges, so um, we're going to present kind of the ideal, if you will, here, and then some of the challenges that historically Christianity has faced over time, and I'll try to wrap up then each segment with some concepts or ideas of how can we begin to orient ourselves again towards uh, God's design and purposes as far as unity and community are concerned. So let's touch, let's begin with unity. This is essentially the birth of the church. And what we find here is truly God's design for um, our expression of faith. We find a, uh, all throughout Acts this notion of one anotherness. There's no notion of individualism. The focus is on the collective, the well-being of the collective, the body of Christ. There is a strong emphasis on hospitality, sharing of meals, house to house, breaking bread together. We see as well uh, the notion of no possessions. There's no sense of entitlement, no drive towards materialism. There is a strong emphasis on compassion, not just giving from our excess, but true distribution, if you will. There's no... Uh, notion of haves and have-nots. Everybody had what they needed because everything was shared together. What comes through, of course, in Acts chapter 2 as well is that everything is spirit-led, spirit-driven. This is uh, the spirit, the supernatural component that is undergirding this incredible sense of unity that's going on. And we'll see later on in the book of Acts, uh, the early church will also be subjected to persecution which we may think of as something that could fragment, but in reality, uh, the persecution also generated uh, unity within the body of Christ. Again, we look at this, and in some ways, it almost seems like a utopia, an ideal that seems very far away. 
And yet this is the design of God and this is what he constantly is putting in front of us as uh, the goal of our expression together. Sure enough, even in the early church, they started to uh, deal with challenges, conflicts, obstacles. Early on, we have um, a dispute that develops over the distribution of goods to uh, the widows. Favoritism is one group being favored over the other. We start to have some um, disputes over uh, ongoing disputes within Acts about the Gentile believers who are coming into the body versus the um, Jewish believers who founded, were part of the founding part of Christianity. And uh, according to the laws of Moses, were the Gentiles to be under the laws of Moses even though they were Christian? You had doctrinal disputes. Paul, over and over again, had to deal with contentious um, debates about whether you should be circumcised. Should the Gentiles be circumcised or not? Can you, meet, can you eat meat that's been offered to idols? Uh, these kinds of things were constantly being lifted up and causing disputes. We even had relational disputes. Think of Paul and Barnabas who were pretty tight, missionaries going out, uh, evangelizing. At some point, they too have a dispute over the person of John Mark, and they end up dividing, going their separate ways. And from that point on, you have Paul and Silas continuing on, and Barnabas takes John Mark with, with him. There's even popularity disputes. We'll see later on. Some prefer Paul, the teachings of Paul. Some prefer Apollos. And we have this human nature of identifying with different personalities and, and popularity contests in some ways. So the early church was not immune to, to disputes and conflict, uh, even though they had the working of the Spirit among them, constantly pushing them towards unity. As a church continues on throughout history, from the early ages to the Middle Ages, uh, again, we see um, a pursuit of unity, but um, now it sort of takes the shape of top-down and imposed unity, because you'll have the um, institution of the church is established, and then um, the institution of church, uh, we find a marriage, if you will, between politics and religion, which is never a, a good idea. And so what you have is um, unity, but it's a unity that is top-down and is sort of imposed upon everyone. Um, tread lightly if you would to go against that. Sure enough, we see then later on, because corruption comes into play, now, these are good things, mind you. The, um, the church had scattered to the wind, right? The early church, and you had representation all around the world already. And so the effort initially with the institution of the church was to come together an agreement on doctrines. And so you have century-long debates about the nature of, you know, the nature of Christ, human nature, divine nature, about the Trinity, uh, about many, about developing what uh, came to be known as the Apostles' Creed, trying to find these essential things that we agree upon. So those things are good, but unfortunately within the institution of the church, connected to the, the powers, political powers, there was corruption, which led to the Reformation movement. Once you had the Reformation, uh, Protestant Reformation, then there was more conflict and dispute, and eventually 
even religious wars during that period of time. Fast forward to our times. Consider uh, Christianity in our day. Let me look specifically uh, American Christianity, then we'll look at worldwide Christianity. So American, uh, the American cultural socialization presents a problem for us because in reality, it's uh, the polar opposite to what uh, we see described here. I'll give you some examples. Individualism is a huge value in our society. Sense of competition, self-fulfillment, creating our own brand. These are all things that are emphasized in our culture. And it will even influence our expression of the Christian faith. If you go to a Christian bookstore, you're far more likely to find books related to self-actualization, self-help, rather than books focused on unity and community. We're also uncomfortable with hospitality or intimacy. We typically like to go to movies together or restaurants or Starbucks. Uh, we have a, a a greater measure of difficulty inviting people into our homes because the homes are more personal and intimate. Of course, as far as possessions, goes without saying we're a capitalistic society and there's a lot of push towards commercialism, materialism, and things like that. Uh, and that, again, affects our Christian perspective often that we can even have something like the prosperity gospel that emerges with this unhealthy emphasis upon material blessing as a sign of God's blessing. We do have a measure of compassion, certainly, but not to the degree of what we see here. There's still so much disparity uh, between the classes. Spirit-led, I don't know, are we spirit-led? Certainly we see it in the pockets of the church, but I think I also see within American Christianity um, a, a reliance, perhaps a reliance sometimes on our own strength or our own biblical interpretations or on formulas. I was part of, uh, in my education, I was part of the church growth principles kind of uh, wave that happened. A lot of really good thoughts, really good concepts, very helpful, but again, only if it's a supplement to what is spirit-driven rather than something that replaces the reliance on the spirit. Finally, we've never really experienced uh, persecution or war on our own soil, so we wouldn't really know what that would look like. But we did get a touch of that at 9-11. Wasn't there a spark of unity uh, when um, there was an attack on our country? That kind of suddenly people drew together to help one another. It didn't matter what your background was, what you believed. There was truly a sense of unity that developed. Now consider the challenges that we face when we talk about worldwide Christian unity. Let's put up slide number two. If this, I don't know how many we are, but if this group were numbered 100, 100 people, and you represented... Uh, worldwide Christianity, 50 of you would be Catholic, 37 of you would be Protestant, 
12 of you would be orthodox, and one would be a blend of different traditions. Demographics. Let's do the next slide. Demographically, we would be a virtual rainbow of nations, tribes, ethnicities, cultures, all socioeconomic classes ranging from the elite 1% to the destitute poor. As far as social political views, the breadth of the Christian worldview, we have extreme conservative to extreme liberal. Everything from the Amish to the gay church and everything in between. The further to the right, we tend to emphasize more on the notion of truth, our understanding of truth. The further out you go to the left, there tends to be more of a focus or emphasis on unconditional love. If we talk about theology, to bring it a little closer to home, 13 out of the 100 of you would be evangelical. And even to bring it closer, perhaps, uh, six to seven of you in the 100 would be white evangelical. I just bring that up, uh, not for any kind of political statements, just to say that, um, uh, you know, in, in our world, the, the quote-unquote white evangelical evangelical vote may carry some clout, but when we consider uh, all of Christendom, it would just represent a small subset of 6% of believers worldwide. Why am I saying all these things? Because we cannot really um, begin to solve the problem of unity in the body of Christ until we consider and understand all of the variables. Neither can we ignore the problem altogether, which would be perhaps a default mode for us, because the pursuit of unity is no less than a God-ordained calling. So, let's begin the process. Let's look at some wisdom from some early church fathers. Can we put up the next slide? I love this uh, um, wisdom. In essentials, unity... In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So, when we talk about essentials, the idea is that let's discern uh, what is truly essential. If I gave a, a topic to this teaching this morning, I would entitle it, What Really Matters? And that's what we're talking about here. Essentials. What really matters when we're talking about the Christian faith, Christian expression. And so we want to seek unity on those matters. Let's be in agreement on what really matters. As far as things that matter less, it could still be important, but we should perceive them as um, a measure of freedom. There's liberty. Choose as you like, the different traditions, what you believe matters and those things. Um, but most of all, whether you believe something is essential or uh, non-essential, whether you're in agreement with someone or disagreement, let's always do it in a spirit of love. That's the bottom line. Agree or disagree agreeably. So we have to discern what is essential, what really matters. This has been a huge stumbling block throughout uh, history. We need to major in the majors. 
and minor in the minors and do so in a spirit of love. Let me give some examples. So Paul, Apostle Paul was constantly confronted, as I said, with these um, doctrines, Old Testament doctrines, teachings, laws. And the Jewish believers trying to grasp the new covenant, having belief in Jesus as the Messiah, but trying to now understand and embrace what does that mean as far as the, the Old Testament covenant. Versus the new believers, Gentiles who are coming into the body of Christ who had no clue about um, the Jewish traditions and laws. And so one that constantly came up often was the notion of circumcision. So Paul would treat that constantly, and what he basically said was, circumcision or non-circumcision, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is faith expressing itself through love. That's what he would say, a distinction between what is essential and what's non-essential. If you're circumcised, that's fine. If you're uncircumcised, that's fine. What really matters is together that we express our faith in love. Other doctrines that have caused um, contention over the centuries. Uh, let's take the notion of baptism. Now, is it uh, does it really matter if you were baptized as a child or as an adult? Does it really matter if you were sprinkled or dunked? I mean, there's many ways that how to baptize someone. But really, what is essential? What's essential is the meaning behind baptism. That we were, are, have died to ourselves and that we're risen in Christ. That should be the focal point, not whether you sprinkle or dunk. Creation is another example. Does it really, when you think about it, does it really matter how creation took place? None of us were there. Was it seven literal days? Was it seven billion years? Now, there's been huge debate, not only within uh, the religious community and the scientific community, but even within Christianity itself. But again, to me, it feels like that's a debate on the second level. It's a debate on what is non-essential. Because the greater question is, who is behind creation? And are we putting our trust in him? Every day I wake up and look outside, all of creation screams to me that there is a creator, without question. How he did it is up to him. It's fun to debate it. It's fun to research it, disagree about it, but it shouldn't divide us. We're united because of who created. We believe in the one who created. Sadly, church history is littered with disagreements, and conflicts, oftentimes on non-essentials. And certainly it has not been in the spirit of charity. Church splits, anyone? Second point uh, towards pursuing unity would be that we need to be naturally supernatural. Our human nature, flesh, is opposed to the spirit, which is supernatural. 
In Job it says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. That seems to be our human nature, is to create conflict. My flesh is selfish. Selfishness generates conflict. Whereas God's heart is unity. Think of the Gospel of John. There's an entire chapter, John 17, devoted to a prayer by Jesus that we would be one. A whole chapter in the Gospel. That's how important the notion of unity is to God. That's why when we look at Acts chapter 2 and we see a genuine outpouring of the Spirit, front and center is unity within the body. So it is with us, if we want to draw closer to this Acts chapter 2 experience, uh, we must give place to the Spirit. We need to seek, cultivate, outpouring of the Spirit individually and collectively because we will not experience one without the other. The third point, we need a change of perspective. I touched on this a few weeks ago, just when I closed the service, just the concept that I teach my students is um, Imagine that your chair represents your perspective. It uh, represents your DNA, where you're raised, your background, nurture nature, everything about you that shapes your perspective on life. And so if I represent reality, each one of you is looking at reality from a different chair, which is an interesting argument in and of itself, because all of us here, I think, would believe in absolute truth. That's part of our Christian faith. And yet, even though we believe there's absolute truth, it is still relative truth because every one of us is going to perceive it a little bit differently than, some, than the other. So we have to give room for that perspective. Um, and not only do we see things from our chair, but we like to hang out with people who are sitting in the chairs next to us which only serves to reinforce our worldviews and our perspective. And because we're not sitting over here, it becomes easier for us to reject the views that are over here because we don't understand those views and perhaps even judge those views. So in my classroom, I make my students change their seats every week just as a way of dialing in and saying, I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to change my seats because my seat represents my comfort zone. Where you're seated today most likely is because for, for whatever rationale you have, it aligns with your comfort zone. Whether you're on the left or the right, back or front, it's usually it's just a small thing but ties into whatever comfort zone that we have. And so it is in our Christian faith that if we stay within our comfort zone, we're never going to reach unity because we're going to always require that the person in this chair comes over to that chair rather than us both getting out of our comfort zone and meeting in the middle. 
Let's put another slide on. I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, the book or film To Kill a Mockingbird. Here's a quotation I think that uh, was certainly relevant in that time period, but it's also very relevant today. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. I think it's self-explanatory. Let me give you a personal experience. I had the opportunity um, to work at the Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row years ago, back in the early 90s. But prior to that time, I had an incredible experience that really helped to prepare me for that time. I was in seminary at the time, part of a kind of a little radical mission that I was developing, but uh, Andrea was also, we weren't married yet, but um, she was part of that same group. And uh, we did something called the Urban Plunge. So basically, you had to pair up. So I had another friend, John, uh, with me. Andrea also was paired up with some, another woman. Basically, you're dropped off. We were in Santa Monica, large homeless population in Santa Monica. We were dropped off for 48 hours. And you have one dollar in your, in your pocket. And obviously, you know, they were, if it got too difficult, risky situation, there was a phone, you know, phone call could be made and no worries. But the whole point was to, to try with the urban plunge just to get a little bit better understanding of what it would be like to be homeless. Now, initially, you just think it's an intellectual exercise to do it. Oh, this is kind of cool. It's radical, you know, dump on the street. It's amazing, though, within 48 hours, how things change. So um, we had to find places to sleep both nights. We go to the stand in lines, trying to get in beds in the missions. There's no room. So eventually, late at night, we find uh, an old abandoned uh, house that was under construction, no walls yet, and we snuck in there and slept on the wood floor just for a little shelter. Then the next night becomes the pursuit of finding something to eat. You're standing in line most of the day, waiting for food to eat. You're wandering around. Then your pursuit suddenly, it, it, it was amazing how pretty soon you start to get into survival mode. Like, you slip from an intellectual idea to, tr to truly starting to get in survival mode. Because then you start thinking about, you know, that wasn't very comfortable last night. Uh, we should see if we can find a better arrangement for tonight where we can sleep. Same thing, no room in the inn. Finally, some late night, some compassionate black pastor who I believe just was opening up his own home to the homeless uh, gave us a strange look because we certainly, as much as we tried, we certainly didn't appear to be very homeless. But uh, he took us in, gave us sheets, and we laid on a concrete floor uh, in the house I didn't sleep a wink because other homeless people were sleeping on the couches and on the floor elsewhere and there was snoring and odor and all these things going on and I couldn't sleep. Eventually coming out of that experience, 48 hours, 
it really gave me a different perspective. Obviously, it's not hardcore. I wasn't desperate. I could have made a phone call and someone would have got me in 10 minutes. But simply getting out of our comfort zone, trying to put yourself in the place of someone that you're trying to minister to in some capacity, uh, changes your perspective. And so when I did work at the rescue mission, I had a whole other level of empathy and understanding. When I had some guy trying to lie to me to get bus tickets, for example, uh, you see beyond that. You see underneath that. You see a hurting person, a person that's just in survival mode. And uh, it, it changes your perspective and it changes the way that you minister to that person. Certainly we can apply that to God, right? Because God sees everything. God sees a perspective in us that we don't even see about ourselves. And he ministers to us accordingly. So speaking of the, the homeless is a good segue, and I won't be as elaborate on the next part because we're running out of time, but the notion of community. That is the idea of our relationship to those outside of the body of Christ. Acts chapter 2 again, we see some references to that. Obviously, you're seeing the intense unity within the body of Christ, but you're also seeing their relationship to those outside of the body of Christ. It says they found favor with all the people. And it says, too, that God was adding to their number daily. So you had organic growth within community, just a natural happenstance. Within community, the church has favor, and people are naturally coming into the church, being added daily to the church. Today, consider those who are outside the body of Christ. Is Christianity generally viewed with favor among all the people? I don't know. In certain circles, again, but it feels like there's a lot of disfavor out there. A lot of Christian bashing going on. Uh, somehow successfully being able to quarantine Christian communities in some ways to separate us from the broader community. Some of it is our own fault. Some of it is, of course, the projection from media. But I think if we take it, if we look at the personal challenges, um, and certainly is God adding to our numbers daily? I don't know. Certain, certain places, yes, but overall, many churches are closing down. Uh, I think worldwide Christianity is growing, but within American Christianity, I don't know the recent numbers, but it doesn't feel like there's much growth happening. It feels more like there's more distance happening. And the challenge, I believe, is our concept of community. Remember the trick question that was asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? He answered the story with, uh, he answered that question with the story of the Great Samaritan. And basically, the nuts and bolts, in essence, he was saying, the person that you least want to be your neighbor that's your neighbor. And in the same way that he is asking uh, and explaining who is your neighbor, he's also asking us who is your community. Because basically your community should be um, the collective of your neighbors. The problem that we have often is that is the exclusive nature of Christianity. 
Many of us think that the church congregation is the extent of our community. We just spoke of the importance of developing unity within the body of Christ, but it shouldn't stop there. That unity should permeate the broader community of unbelievers as well. Many branches of Christianity have um, issues with this. Uh, for example, Catholicism and, and evangelical movement, we tend to have an us and them mentality. You're in or you're out. You're saved or you're lost. Because within Christianity, we know there is, there is a need to enter into salvation. But unfortunately, God did not intend us to separate us, separate us out, but for us to be the light and the salt of the earth to bring people in. But we've allowed uh, our worldview to create this us and them mentality. So we need to consider the relationship between belonging and believing. We may have a heart to reach our community, but if our behavior is exclusive, we may not find favor with our community, and we may not find that God is adding uh, them every day to our community. Generally, we tell people, if you believe, then you can belong. So we make them go outside of their comfort zone, come to church, uh, jump through the hoops. If they come to a place of belief, then we embrace them. Rather than us being light and salt, rather than us getting out of our comfort zones and going out to embrace them. Sometimes people need to feel like they belong before they will believe. They want to experience love and acceptance before they believe the message is authentic. In my perspective, that's how Jesus ministered. Why else would the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those who are viewed as the rejects of society hang out with Jesus? They must have felt that in spite of their rejection from the world that they belonged. Jesus somehow created an environment of belonging. And within that environment of belonging, he didn't leave them there. He called them out. They came to believing in him and following him. But I believe surely it began with a sense of belonging. Because when you encountered Jesus, you didn't just feel like you belonged to a church community. You belong to God. And I think that should be our approach. Are we going to create an environment where people can feel like they belong and allow them that space to make that journey towards belief? I think that's critical. Paul, a central figure in the early church, pushed the early Jewish believers to embrace the Gentiles. And his approach was very inclusive. He says, I'm a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek. So he'll get out of the Jewish chair and go in the Greek chair, vice versa. He's going to do whatever it takes to save as many as possible. 
Paul is constantly getting out of his comfort zone and embracing whatever community is in front of him so that he can authentically express uh, the message of love, his faith expressed in love. What really matters to us then, and when we think about community, we shouldn't think of ourselves individually or church community or as American or whatever ways we may categorize ourselves. What really matters is that we are simultaneously and interdependently citizens of heaven and members of the human race. Those are our parameters when we're talking about community. This is not community. This is just a small expression of community. But we need to work on unity in here so that we can effectively permeate the broader community outside. There's no mistake when I put those two themes together, unity and community, that the word unity is found within the word community. That being the case, we must cultivate unity within the body, all the while embracing community at large in the hopes that all humanity will be reconciled unto God. So let us open our hearts to God's empowering spirit. We know we cannot do it without God's spirit. Acts chapter 2 is God's spirit working within us. But we see the possibilities it's not just an ideal. If we do it on our own, it's utopia. It's pie in the sky. Through God's spirit, Acts chapter 2 is possible. We must open our minds to broader perspectives so that we can create an environment of belonging. And when we create that environment of belonging, I believe you will find more people within your circle that begin to take steps towards believing because you're there, you're with them you're in their place of need you're in their comfort zone and that will open the door for you then to lead them towards belief finally, we must open our arms to a world that is seeking to belong and then to believe can I say a prayer? Heavenly Father these words mean nothing unless uh, your spirit uh, follows them and brings conviction to each one of us in terms of our own context and situations. We do invite your spirit. We ask that your spirit would inhabit each one of us, that you would dwell in us as far as a church community is concerned, and that you would empower us uh, to embrace the barter community that we too would come to a time where um, we can experience true unity and where we can see um, favor um, with all the people and that we see people being added uh, to our body daily. That's our prayer. We thank you. For I can't stop thinking about that, uh, the Harper Lee quote. Um, and I can't stop thinking that God did climb into my skin. 
and he did walk around in it. He died in it, and then he resurrected it. And now it's my job, and it's our job, to be love. And I was thinking, what is love? And love is this, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, and it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Thanks be to God. Father, you are love. Thank you for teaching us that and for um, giving us your Holy Spirit, which is our companion to teach us um, how to live in unity and community because it is a supernatural thing to be able to uh, love the way that you do. Um, thank you for this community. Uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for our city and our country um, and this home we call Earth. And, uh, I just pray that your name would be uh, shouted out loud all over it, going back and forth. We love you, Father. In your name, amen.